morning, glory, and evening, Grace America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It's that time of the week when the Hillsdale Dialogue unfolds before you once a week. I spend a radio hour with either Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, or one of his colleagues talking about one of the great texts of Western civilization for the past few weeks and for the next couple of weeks. We are in Aristotle, primarily the ethics. We will also get to the politics perhaps next week or the week thereafter. Uh, Dr. Larry Arn, welcome. It's great to talk to you. I want to go quickly back to where we were last week for people who are listening, perhaps on the iPods, and they're rushing ahead. Last week, you were talking about the fact that you teach this in seminar form to 15 students often at the college at Hillsdale. And I'm curious, if you videotape that, would it change the way it, it, it unfolded? Well, we're going to teach an online course on Aristotle's ethics sometime. Probably I will do it. But and it, it will be good, I think. Our people seem to enjoy our courses. But here's what gets changed. Um, if you get 15 or 20, 20 is a lot, but I think I've taught 22 or 23 once, um, everybody can see everybody, and everybody can contribute. And we learn better that way because we're made to talk, remember, and the seminar is the classic way for, you know, and, and you know, it, Aristotle's claim is, and also Plato's claim is, the seminar on the right subject is one of the highest possible human experiences. Because everybody, you know, like, uh, here's, a, here's a thing that happened one time. There's a kid named Wegman, who's a married man now and works here on Capitol Hill, James Wegman. And I said something once, and he stirred at his seat and grimaced, and, and uh, then relaxed. And I said, I know what you think. And he said, what, doctor? And I said, you think that what I just said was an aberration and an excessive demotion of politics to which you are very attached. And then you thought, no, it's Dr. Arn. He didn't make that mistake. And then you relaxed. And he ah. said, he said, how did you know that? And I said, I know you, James. <laughs> so, so the point is, in a seminar, we can all learn together, and things become clearer to everyone. Because, you know, it would be better if these listeners that you referred to last week, the ones who love the thing, and then some of them who you say do not love the thing that we're doing here. And, you know, it's a pain in the tickets to both of us. So maybe we should just shut up about it. But if... If they would come in and talk, that would be better. Yeah. Because, you know, because then you can answer the points and we'll, it's, uh, somebody's going to learn something, and probably everybody is. But if you teach an online course, then you can explain, and we're pretty good at explaining because that's what we do for a living. And then people can send in questions and they can have discussion boards with each other. And there's value in that. I don't think it's great a value, but value. But value. I mean, I've only been in one seminar outside of our conversations, uh, long ago and far away, at Harvard with a fellow named Edward Banfield. I don't know if you ever met him. And, I knew him and, well. Great did man. you? Did you really? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. And, and he was very generous with two students, Regina Pisa and myself, very generous. And we would meet in his office and he would do this. And you didn't really know what you were learning until it was done. Uh, and even then, you just you just glimpsed it. So it is a very high form. So I, I, I'm I'm hopeful that people have that opportunity to at least observe it. I think it will go it will go well when you do that. If you somehow find a way of retaining the intimacy in the exchange. Now let's go back to the to the ethics. There are uh, there is in the in the Roman Catholic world a right familiar to those who are observant Catholics. The right of penance. It's a sacrament. 
And before you receive the sacrament, you're supposed to examine your conscience. And it's a, it's a rather elaborate process that you learn when you're young and you get better at it. And it culminates sort of an Ignatian spirituality where you really do examine your conscience. And as I read the ethics again, I thought of that, thinking for the non-Christian, this is about, it's almost involuntary as you move through the ethics in his catalog of virtues, vices, the mean, and that which is on either side of it to engage in that. And so it's almost a self, uh, a forcing of a self-examination. Is that common in your seminar? Oh, yeah, of course. We all, you know, everybody wants to be good. And uh, once you, once you're explained to you that that is the purpose of human life, then of course we're all like, like a big moment in the ethics is when Aristotle is, you know, says things it makes one deduce. He never quite says this thing I'm about to say, but you can see he means it. Most people are in the middle, right? Very few people are really vicious and very few people are very, really virtuous. Well, everybody perks up when they hear that, right? Because they want to know where they are. Yep. Of course, you know, and, uh, for, and you know, it's, it's not, by the way, th- that teaching is not in any sense at odds with Christianity. No. Because Christianity invites you to do the same thing. And, and, uh, and that, so, yeah, that's what they want to know. See, they want to know, because it is a way, you know, here's why, one, I said this before, but I'll say it again. One of the reasons I love the book, among so many reasons I do, is because this idea that the good is not just known, but is the faculty, the knowledge of it is the faculty by which we operate as human beings, is tremendously challenging and also liberating because we can shrug off all this talk that nobody can know what the good is. You just make it up for yourself. And we can get to work figuring out what it is. And that is the work of civilization. That is the work of ethics. And so the book is wonderfully liberating for that. And students find that liberation and enjoy it immensely. Now, the three practical rules of conduct that that Aristotle lays out earlier in the book, I think it's in book three of the book. Avoid the extreme that is farther from the mean. Notice what errors you're committing repeatedly and try and not do them. And then uh, be wary of pleasure. (laughs) So that third (laughs) one, yeah, that's going to be a problem. Uh, So because, you know, basically every advertisement that comes along on the radio show in between our conversations is an advertisement for a pleasure of a sort one way or the other. So uh, those hold true over time and they are far easily stated than they are practiced. But you are there's really it's just matter of fact. It's just the statement of how it is. Yeah, and let me let me explain because let's use courage, and we'll explain about the mean and the extremes, and about w- what constitutes the middle. And he he begins with courage. Well begun there. Yeah, and so courage and courage is vivid. Courage is easy to see, right? Like eating strawberry pie or chocolate cake. That's you know a challenge to moderation, but courage is clearer than that in a way. Because in courage, there, in, in, on a battlefield, and courage really has a lot to do with war, all kinds of danger, but war is the archetype. And, and, uh, and think on a battlefield, right? What do you want to do? There are two things you want to do, and one is run away, and the other is roll up in a little ball. Right. And everybody wants to do those things. It's loud, it's an incredible cacophony, and it's very dangerous. And... 
there's so much chance involved if bullets are whistling, whistling all over the place. So you want to do those things. And if you do either of those two things, that's cowardice. That's what we call the deficiency of courage. There's not enough of it there. Now, there's another thing that people do sometimes, and that is sometimes they just get up and charge screaming at the enemy because they can't stand it anymore, and they often get killed doing that. And once in a while, and especially in bad movies about war, they present that as heroism, and it's kind of accidental. That's what Aristotle calls rashness. Too much of it, right? And courage is the place in between those two obstacles or temptations. And that's when you feel the fear, but the fear does not dominate. You you must be afraid to have courage, but the, the fear is not what controls your action, or in the case of the sublimely courageous, the fear is not the thing that dominates your thinking, so you can be wonderfully effective I mean, there's a, I've told the story before, but I think on your show, but uh, Churchill, you know, once got an armored train under artillery and light arms fire loose, and it got away. And he was out in, in the open. Several people were killed, and several dozen were wounded, and the fire was persistent and dense. And he walked around upright uh, with people watching him, and they were staggered by the spectacle of it. They couldn't believe it. And later he, he confessed that he was frightened to death. There was no sign of it whatsoever. And also, his calculations were superb, and he did get it free. And so he was not just defying the fear. He was, he was responding to something else. And that means he didn't go to you know, not far enough in courage, and he didn't go too far. He go, he went the right amount. He went to the mean. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn to continue the conversation about Aristotle's ethics. Go nowhere. You're listening to Hillsdale Dialogue. Hugh for Hillsdale.com for all of them, or Hillsdale.edu for them and the other lectures on civilization, which you really ought to listen to this summer. Stay with us. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America. It's the weekly Hillsdale Dialogue. This week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. We are deep into Aristotle's The Ethics, talking about courage. Dr. Arn, the last segment you say, you noted that many war movies attempt to get this right. And I think the finest war movie are the is Saving Private Ryan. In the first 20 minutes of it, without any music, just the the landing at Normandy, the chaos and the confusion, and Tom Hanks' character, Captain John Miller, is obviously both afraid but brave, not rash, but also not cowardly, uh, cowardly, and having to move through danger, head up and alert, and make decisions. In fact, the best line in the whole movie is when he's blown up and he's concussed and a private's yelling at him, where's the rally point? And he says, anywhere but here. He kind of uh, summarizes the need to get off, but to get off in a way that saves their lives. It's hard to actually capture courage the right way. It's always overdone or underdone. But that is the mean that Aristotle then uses to move to all of the other virtues. Yeah, and there's one more thing to know about it that makes it really courage. And it's actually... It, it, it's actually the central point, and we haven't named it yet, because the virtues in Aristotle are a mixture 
always of thinking and desiring. It's not just what you think, it's what you want. And courageous actions, and this is an terribly important thing to understand all virtues, is that courageous actions are done for the sake of the beautiful. In other words, they're not done just to be effective on the battlefield, and they're not done to avoid shame, although that's coincident with this thing I'm saying. They're done because to do them is to commit a good or especially a beautiful act. And it can't be a beautiful act just to rage and throw your life away, and it can't be a beautiful act to retreat. In fact, it takes very close calculation in a war situation, and I'm going to say in any kind of situation, to discover what is the beautiful action. And, of course, most only high opportunities present And I want to say what this word beautiful means in Aristotle, because Aristotle says everything aims to the good, and we defined that word and identified it with the human faculty, but the highest form of the good, the goods that are chosen for their own sake, those are the beautiful things. And so we long for those things. Like we, these Kardashian girls, I gather, are beautiful. I've actually seen photographs of them. I'm not completely cut off from humanity. Um, And as I recall, they're beautiful, although they didn't strike me as the most beautiful. Um, But this kind of beauty that I'm talking about is more beautiful than physical appearance, although physical appearance can be very beautiful. it's, It's a kind of beauty that when we see it, we long for it. You know, my example on a battlefield is George Washington at Princeton, where he marched through his own fleeing soldiers to actually save. It's one of three or four times in his life when, in the war when Washington saved the American Union and founded it. And what he did was he walked his horse at the pursuing British at a steady pace without looking left or right and just his, his sword sticking out toward the British. And he didn't have any way to know. There's a record of this by an adjutant named Fitzwilliams who was with him. He didn't have any way to know whether anybody was turning to come with him. He was walking at the British alone, and they formed to fire. And he was giving the orders to fire. And there was an enormous uh, uh, cascade of of musket fire, and he was shrouded in, in smoke. And Fitzwilliam covered his face with his cap and said, I can't bear to look at it. And then when the smoke cleared, Washington was still on his horse, and it was still striding purposely toward the British, and the Americans had formed behind him, and they ran from him. The British did. And that's what made, that's what preserved the victory at the Battle of Trenton and kept the United States in the war to get founded for another year. You know, I haven't heard that before. I've never heard that story. Huh. Everyone who saw that thought that is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen in my life. Sure. See, and and think of the way that Washington was trusted for the rest of his life. They could not hold the Constitutional Convention without him agreeing to go. They could not design the executive except with him in mind to hold it first and set the example. And it was because 
they had and remember Washington was not a great speech maker and he did not write many of his greatest speeches himself Madison wrote many of them but people had seen him do that and that was an operation of the human being so high and perfect that it was beautiful you know, I've been reading, as I've told you before, the uh, the account of 1940 and 41 in Great Britain. And Churchill would go out each night and drive his people crazy because he would go to the sound of the bombs. And then he would poke around in the bombs and he would go to the searchlight. And the, the who was his personal detective? Thompson uh, was beside himself all the time. And that displaced, as Doug, Douglas MacArthur, they called him Dugout Doug, but he often exposed himself. Yeah. to extraordinary risk, as did, I think, probably most great leaders in war. That's right. And that's, and, and it's not done. And see, when, when you think about it, maybe they're showing off. And, you know, there's a great story about Tipper Gore when she was vice president's wife. They went down to uh, somewhere where there was a flood, and, and, and uh, she walked down the street with a shovel to get a shot of her shoveling some stuff to get help clean up, you know, wherever this flood was. And uh, and she kept stopping, and the press, you know, finally after after she was out of the job, somebody wrote it up because the press have a kind of code. They don't write things up like this up. But she kept stopping at the wrong door and saying, is this the place where I'm supposed to shovel, you know, for the TV cameras? And then when she went into her tent to spend the night, you know, on the scene helping overnight, she zipped up the tent, and then the cameras went off, and then she zipped it down, went and checked into a hotel. Hotel. <laughs> so, so you know, that was. And that's the not the is, real thing. No, no, it's not the real thing. That, that wasn't beautiful. <laughs> so now we have the, why it's beautiful, and we have courage as the mean between these things. So having established that, Aristotle moves off immediately to temperance. Is that also right. because it's easy? Yeah. Well, temperance is less an immediate scene of noble and beautiful action than courage. It's just necessary, and it is a direct preparation for the most beautiful kind of action. Because if you just think what temperance means, it just means you want things and you can't have them, or you ought not to have them. And how do you manage that? And Aristotle's account of temperance is that it, in, in a way, it is more fundamental and goes further than courage, although courage is terribly important. Because with temperance, as with courage, it's not just a matter of denying yourself. It's a matter of shaping your wishes. We come back from break and we'll talk about what that means. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogues continue. If you want every minute of every Hillsdale Dialogue, you go to hughforhillsdale.com. The college makes them available for free, beginning in the Iliad. And we've been doing this for six months. And you will be very rewarded for listening to them. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the Hour America, it's Hugh Hewitt. And I confess to being way behind. Uh, I have uh, my plan for attack on the ethics is completely blown up, Dr. Larry Arn, because I'm way behind. Uh, <laughs> it was it was originally going to be two hours. It's up to four. It could go longer. I suppose this is what you averred to when we when we began this. You said just leave a lot of time for the ethics. And so uh, <laughs> on temperance, uh, let's go back and reset what we said before the break. Aristotle brings it up as the second virtue to be explored after courage 
it's a little bit more difficult to understand because it involves wanting, but it also doesn't involve complete denial of that wanting. No, because, you know, in, this is encouraged. There's an excess and a deficiency. So in pleasures, there are excesses and deficiencies. And so all of the pleasures that, you know, that are famous, eating and, you know, whatever, they're all natural. We like them for a reason. And so we should have them. But having them in the wrong amount would be destructive of us. And, you know, obviously if you eat too much, you get fat. And, and uh, so you've, you've, you have to dispose yourself in the right way toward pleasure. It's not just getting the right amount. For example, it wouldn't be virtuous if you put yourself in a cage and hired someone just to put the right amount of every pleasure before you and not let you have any more. Because what goes on in the soul is terribly important in a preparation for something much higher that we'll get to at the end. And that is, you have to not want too much. Because what you want, the desires have to be shaped toward the beautiful. And so if it's craven to do anything, you, you, you must be repelled by it. You must not just not be tempted by it. You must, be, you must find it repulsive. But you know what? So, I'm going to jump ahead just to, to, to one of the great men we'll study in Plutarch Caesar. Of enormous appetites of every kind and of great accomplishments, the greatest probably of any man of the ancient world in terms of simple accomplishments. And, and what would Aristotle say of that, that he both, he sinned greatly and he accomplished greatly and that that was just his nature? Well, uh, you know, the, an, an easy thing to say to undercut your claims about Caesar would be, didn't his appetites get carried away with him just a little bit? <laughs> you know, I mean, even in, in regard to his greatest accomplishments, because he took an army across a river that involved an upsetting of the Roman Constitution. And, and you know, it's an ambiguous story. Maybe he had to do that. It was a world of very hard choices, and the regime had declined. But... Aristotle would certainly say he ought not to be carried away by his appetites. And, you know, Aristotle was uh, a man capable of enormous self-denial. There's a statue, a famous statue of Aristotle. Aristotle used to say, and I, I don't want to encourage people not to sleep because you've got to sleep, but he used to say that sleep is an ignoble state because it's the smallest difference between a good man and a bad man when you're asleep. Huh. And Aristotle did experiment. He would hold a ball, a metal ball, in his hand, and the brass ball was a symbol of the universe for the Greeks. And he would hold it in his hand, in his left hand, and let it droop. And when he fell asleep, it would fall and hit a metal plate and wake him up, which means that the brass of the universe was keeping Aristotle awake. Well, Aristotle was, you know, Aristotle, he's like James Madison about this, he experimented how much he needed to sleep because he wanted some independent knowledge of that apart from how much he wanted. Wanted to sleep. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure he was a lot of fun to be around, Dr. Larry Arn, but uh, from... Well, no, it was, yeah, he was a genius, right? And about him, a lot of these things we have, one, one of the accounts of the things we have from Aristotle, because many of the texts are not very good, is that these are notes taken by students 
or prepared by him. Aristotle was very much a teacher. <laughs> and uh, that must have been wonderful. I would love to have done that. He appreciated amiability and wit, correct, as we go to break. that he oh, yeah. he, he was fond of those things which make a teacher a great teacher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he was inspiring, you know. People loved him. And, you know, wit is a virtue, and uh, it's, not a, it's not a major virtue, but it's a virtue. And Aristotle, remember, you have to get it in your mind, because there are two things that go on in the ethics. One is they take these particular things apart and look at them, things you have to do all the time. So in one way, it's like reading a self-help book, but really good. And I'll tell you the other one when we come back. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn on the Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the Hour America, Hugh Hewitt, welcome back. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. This is the Hillsdale Dialogue. Uh, we are talking about Aristotle. Just before the break, Dr. Arn said there are two things going on here. You take apart these very specific things, some of them small, some of them larger, into smaller parts and examine them very closely. What is the second thing, Doctor? Well, so the small thing is an example is ambition. How much ambition is right? How do you know? Gluttony. How much eating is right? How much all kinds of appetites, right? The grand thing is a structure of life is put together that involves the relationship between the moral and the intellectual virtues, the virtues of doing and the virtues of thinking. And in this relationship is found a hierarchy that points to the best way for human beings to live. So what kind of life overall is the best life? And, and how do the various kinds of life that are worthy, and there are more than one that are worthy, how do they rank? And one gets the tools to think about that by reading this book. And so apart from coaching about daily life situations, there's also kind of career counseling going on. Interesting. I, I want to go back to that coaching about life situation, our last segment. Next week, we'll come back. And, and I promise the audience, whether we're done or not, we will be done with the ethics next week because we have to get to the politics eventually. I want to talk about money uh, and, and his conversation about liberality and magnanimity. Because as a college president, you have to talk about money all the time with people. You have to talk about it with students who have to pay some to come to Hillsdale. You have to talk about it with donors who have to contribute to Hillsdale to build the great institution you have built there. And, and you have to talk to people about money. All, you have to talk to your children about money and your, and your, and your spouse about money and your, and your students about their daily lives. Does this still work, what he says about it? Oh, big time. I, I'll give you two examples of, uh, two kinds of examples. I, I'm going to name two people by name. Um, uh, generosity is um, giving away money for a good cause, for the right reason, for the sake of the beautiful. That is to say, you've got some money and you give some significant part of it. The widows might, but the Bible would be an example, but... Any gift of normal size is an example, and that's a very worthy thing to do, according to Aristotle. Um, and, it, it, you know, it's, it's a form of self-rule, by the way, to do that. And it's amazing and wonderful about the United States that it is the only country with huge middle-class philanthropy. Because we're all governors, we're all rulers, and we all feel like we are, and we give money to things. But then there's another thing beyond generosity also very great and its only difference is really a difference of scale it's called magnanimity which is the latin words that mean great soul uh 
Uh, no, I'm sorry, it's not called magnificent. It's called magnificence. What's wrong with me? Um, and that comes from a from a Latin word meaning great means something like that. And uh, um, that's somebody who gives huge gifts. And I'm going to name two great somebodies. The largest two gifts we've ever had in Hillsdale College history are from people who wish to remain anonymous. But both of them never wrote that down. Uh-huh. And I told them, if they wrote it down, I would never use their names. But if they didn't, I would. Uh-huh. <laughs> they said, and they said, well, we might not leave you the money then. And I said, it's your money. It's your in money. In both cases. But if you leave it to me, I'm going to talk about it unless you specifically forbid me to do it. And their names are Dorothy Mahler and Cortland Dietler. And they both left us north of $45 million. Wow. And, and they didn't tell me how much before they died. And they didn't want to name anything. I, I'm putting something up about both of them on the campus, although they said, I don't want that. And I said, do you really not want that? Because that's a mistake. And they said, well, I don't want it. And I said, you have to write that down. <laughs> In the document, you give the gift, and then I won't. But if you don't, I'm going to take this as a mood. It's easy for you to fix it, I said, but you better fix it if you really mean it. And they didn't. (laughs) So I'm telling everybody about them. And they didn't want anything. They didn't want me to thank them in public. They didn't tell me how much money beforehand. That's magnificence. That's awesome, right? And it was a gift they could give for the sake of the beautiful, in both of their cases. And they didn't, you know, I mean, it's just awesome what they did. And it is. And why do we admire that? Well, because it's selfless and grand. In other words, all of the virtues, because let me describe to you how Aristotle describes a virtuous soul. A virtuous soul is open to the world because it has cultivated all of these ability to address the many obstacles to human life that distort it and harm it. It is, a, it is a soul that can see things as they are and that can take pleasure in the good things, especially the beautiful things, and in fact is wholly committed to them and cannot, and is not affected by the bad things. Such a soul, if you meet such a person, they're wonderful people to meet because there's nothing small about them. And and there, if you if you yourself have enough virtue in you to perceive it, you want to be around them because they make you sit up straighter, and and they point out things to you that you should have seen all along and taken pleasure in. And uh, you know, this one reason this book is good for me. It's like the Bible about this is I work too hard. I have a job that's demanding and overcomes me sometimes, and. I, I, I get to the place where I'll say, you know, this is a wonderful thing to be doing. There's just too much of it. And that's a real thing. But on the other hand, what is life for? And if you read a book like this, it reminds you of that. It reminds you that there are beautiful things for the sake of which you are to fight. And, you know, those two people who left that money to us and you know, many others who left large sums and small I've had the pleasure to talk with them about the college and what it does. And in those cases, I could tell that they were evaluating me 
and was I a serious man or not? And I tried to be a serious man, and I know they thought so. And they gave for the serious things we both love. Not to me, for those things. When we come back next week, we will continue on in Aristotle, the ethics. Don't miss the conclusion of our many-part series on the ethics on the next Hillsdale Dialogue. You're listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show.